Okay, let's go to Titus. We're in a series entitled The Church. In our first three messages, we looked at leadership in the church. And now we're in the middle of three messages talking about discipleship in the church. And this ethos or this defining characteristic of spiritual growth that occurs among God's people as they do the work that God has given them to do. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 for our time together today. Paul writes, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. May God bless the reading, the hearing, and the understanding of His Word today. I want to finish what I started last week. And we began last week by looking at this idea this ethos of spiritual growth called discipleship. And and I began by talking about the church as a community and the community of the church. And I basically said this, that we are the church. We're not like a family. We are family. And that's so critical for us because the church builds a unique and a distinct kind of community. So when the church talks about community, we shouldn't confuse that with the community that so often gets discussed in the world. You see, as the church, we are chosen by the Heavenly Father to be adopted into His family. We are blood-bought by the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're born again by the Spirit and filled to live by His strength alone. In this world, we are identified with Jesus through water baptism. And so the fellowship that we build together reflects the relational intimacy of our triune God. And the relationship that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit enjoys is the relationship that we've come under the uh, perfection of and the experience of, and we are watching it work itself out with one another before God among us. And so Christian community is distinct because of our communion with God, not because of our commonality with others. That's what's so important for the church to get. Christian community forms what I would call an ecosystem where every relationship cultivates growth and maturity in every Christian as mission of God's kingdom is served in the world. And discipleship, it's that, it's that regular pulse in every activity of the church that grows and matures God's people as the church. And that was the big idea that we took last week, and I want to reiterate it this week and remind us that discipleship streams through mission in the church to grow and mature God's people as the church. Discipleship streams through mission that's in the church to grow and mature God's people as the church. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you excited about discipleship? Are you excited about about growing in your own faith? Do you get excited uh, uh, about seeing Life change come about because of what God's doing in your heart and in your life through the gospel. That excites me. Does it excite you? Are you with me? Are we together in this? This is a church participation moment. 
Are we together in this? Good, because we've got some really hard conversations that we need to have. Yes, I was seven years old. You see, the church must be together. Because we've got hard conversations that need to shape our regular discourse in the life of the church. We looked at four characteristics. Actually, we began to look at four characteristics that mark this ethos of discipleship in the church. I just want to briefly remind us of the first two, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time on three and four today as we finish. But the first characteristic that marks discipleship in the church is this, that discipleship sources from the teaching and the preaching of sound doctrine. Discipleship in the church, that stream flowing through the church, it sources from the preaching and the teaching of sound doctrine. When we begin with Paul's command in verse 1 of chapter 2 to teach what accords with sound doctrine, we see the stark contrast against the false teachers at the end of chapter 1. And what we learn is that that teaching what accords with sound doctrine means that we teach what aligns with God's word through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sound doctrine is not just some limited focus like, oh, we're going to talk about the the gospel, so it's going to involve uh, Jesus, his blood, a cross, uh, a tomb, and a resurrection. And if you just leave it at those bare theoretical facts, sometimes it gets molded into hard uh, a hardness that, that cannot be cracked open. But, but when we take the reality of those truths and we begin to unpack them in light of the whole counsel of God's Word from Genesis to the end of Revelation and realize that the truth of Jesus Christ coming in His perfect man form and living a perfect life and then dying a perfect death and then rising from the tomb and leaving it perfectly empty and then ascending into heaven and being seated at the right hand of the Father where he will perfectly and is perfectly ruling and reigning today. And we see all of Scripture in light of this truth, of this reality. It changes everything about what we teach. And so sound doctrine measures and understands all things about reality in this life according to God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sound doctrine teaches biblical life application and it trains us in how to live it out daily through the gospel. And we go, yes, that's what I want. But when we get into hard conversations today as the means through which we uh, cultivate that life application out, so often we go, wait a minute, that's not what I want. You have to remember it begins with sound doctrine. It shapes the life of the church around the truth of God's word with the gospel as the center of of all Christian discipleship. The second characteristic we saw was not only that discipleship sources from sound doctrine, but it demands relationships with people that point you to godliness. I spent a lot of time talking about multi-generational discipleship last week. Paul identifies four uh, labels of people, if you will, older, younger, men, women, in this passage. And he's saying something to us that I believe is incredibly important for us today that biblical discipleship demands multi-generational relationships that teach and train us in godliness. The gospel leads us beyond our personal and our generational divide to move forward in spiritual growth. And spiritual growth requires looking forward in order for us to grow, but also reaching back for others so that we can invest in their lives and help them grow as well. I listed three purposes for multi-generational discipleship last week, and, and I believe Paul brings them to light as we're going to see today. But those three purposes were this, so that we might bring rebuke where rebuke is needed and confront sin in our lives and have sin confronted in our lives. We need encouragement that strengthens us, that fills us with the courage of God and His Spirit within, spoken through one to another in the church. And we need a reminder that points us to Jesus in every way to help us remember the gospel 
and apply it. So today, as we take these first two characteristics and we begin to move into to the third, this has given us the framework of multi-generational relationships through which disciples streams. But today, I want to talk about the content of those conversations that we need to be having in the midst of this discipleship. And that's where we come to the third characteristic, that discipleship addresses personal idols to apply the gospel in repentance and walk in obedience. Discipleship addresses personal idols to apply the gospel in repentance and walk in obedience. Paul provides two very specific items for discipleship relationships. And here's what he says. He says there are certain kinds of people that one should look for as disciplers. And then he gives us the primary focus of the conversation. So he does this. He says older men, and he qualifies them with these characteristics. And then he says older women likewise, and he qualifies them. But then he transitions into the kinds of things they ought to talk about. And then he begins to address younger women, and then he bookends it with younger men. And what he's doing is he's saying this, that number one, those in the older camp, and remember, I did not qualify that with a number. Because it is a relative issue. For you and for me, older will not be the same. But it still needs to be qualified in relative, uh, uh, relative to who we are and where we are in our life. So it, it doesn't just mean anyone who is a, 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 an age beyond yours or before yours, but that is one qualifying manner. It's really, I think, as much about the stage of life as it is the age of life. But I want you to understand that. That older is qualified, first of all, how? By character. The half of the first chapter was established this way. And he's now taking that qualification of character and he's applying it not only to the leaders of the church, but to the church body at large. And so older is qualified by character. These are the kind of people that they should be that you're going to look to to influence you for the sake of the gospel. And not only does he talk about character, but secondly, he qualifies older by the content of the conversation that they should focus on. I love fishing and I love sports, but too often that consumes our conversations in Christian fellowship and makes it something completely other than. Then he moves to the younger generation, and he says that you should be influenced and directed by these two things, by those whose character is established in godliness and whose content in their conversation is able to, because of their character, and willing to, because of their character, enter into these conversations to influence you, not just for their agenda, which false teachers were doing in chapter 1, but ultimately for the kingdom of God and godliness to come about in your life. And so the character of a person that influences you should be a first priority, and then godliness as a first priority in influencing you should be present in their conversation. You see, friends, discipleship addresses everything that applies to real life. There's not one area of your life that discipleship should be absent from. But it always begins and focuses on obedience to biblical life priorities. That's what Paul is saying here. And listen, I need you to hear me. Because these verses often get misconstrued in the church and upon the church. And I'll enter into a little bit of that in a moment. I don't have time to completely unpack it. But, but I am going to burst our bubbles on some of that, if you will. Deconstruct some of our wrong thinking in terms of discipleship and even Christian godliness at times. And so stay with me. First of all, a relationship that produces spiritual growth, friends. It demands a godly person that is worthy of being pursued. You know what? Carnal and ungodly are both possible at any age. Godliness is not just 
something that happens. It's something that is pursued. And just because it's an old church attender does not equate with godly. Listen, I am of the mindset that old is something we should all desire. Not because for the reasons that we think, but the scriptures tell us that it denotes a place in life that is of honor. And I want to be qualified in my life and dignified in such a way that the scriptures say I should be honored, not because of who I am, but because of who is living in me. And everything about the world fights us in our aging, does it not? Because we can't do what we think we ought to be able to do or what we used to be able to do. But I would translate that into saying, what if we, as we age, learn to give ourselves away so that so many others could do and become? And what a blessing it would be for the church if we would embrace this, not just getting old for the sake of getting old, but getting old with an intentionality of giving ourselves away for those who are beyond us and behind us. What a blessing that would be. I think that's what multi-generational discipleship is all about. People who are worthy to influence you must be specific kinds of people. People marked by godliness and character. People willing and able to influence you in biblical content. Friends, a person who doesn't walk with Jesus has no idea how to encourage you to do it, no matter their age, no matter the age. A disciple maker must be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. You see, the language and how they talk about it will be different. This is something I'm learning at my stage of life, I am learning that the vocabulary has already changed. And I'm trying to figure out what they're talking about. We don't talk about groovy anymore. We don't talk about cool anymore. Let, let me put it into a cultural context. If I said the word fox, you would likely think from a younger generation... I was talking about an animal that ran in the woods. And those of you who are older are trying to stop yourself from giggling. Because if your junior high annuals were pulled out as well, there would be girls' pictures who would have that word written over the top of it. Right? Oh yeah, I'm right. I know who you are. I had friends like you. Vocabulary changes. Here's... Here's one of the greatest disconnects between generations in the world, but surely in the church. Is we think because people don't use the same words we use, they can't mean the same things that we mean. And that's one of the greatest trip-ups that we have. There's two words that we use regularly that weren't used more than 15 years ago. The word missional is a word that has become so common in our vocabulary specific to the church. That, that it's almost inconceivable that there was a time it was not used. But I remember the time when missional began to be used and people thought it was actually a perversion of the word because of the way it was used. It's true. Our vocabulary is going to change. But it doesn't mean that we have nothing to gain from one another. Discipling relationships must be built on godly character and biblical content because the conversations are hard and they are intended to produce life change through the gospel. Jesus practiced this. His first command of disciples was what? Follow me. Follow me. Paul picks this up as well. In the Corinthians, uh, to the Corinthians rather, he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, Jesus saying follow me was not identical to Paul saying be imitators of me. Because what Paul was saying was be imitators of me as I'm imitating Christ. In other words, walk alongside me. Don't try to be me. 
And that's another good distinction for us in the church. But any relationship that dares to make you more like Jesus will begin with someone who is already living in obedience to his commands. Paul later says, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying the same thing that Titus 2.1 says. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Because what he's telling Timothy is that your life should be adorned with the gospel in such a way that the gospel is adorned by the way you live your life. And that's ultimately where he will bring it back to here. Following mature Christians as they follow Christ to learn how to follow Christ is a fundamental principle to growth and to maturity in the Christian life. Flying solo is not biblical. Paul commends the kind of people that we should follow. Let's go back and let's unpack these characteristics. Here are the kind of people that he's qualified that should be followed because of their character. Older men, he gives four characteristics. He says this, they should be sober-minded. That is a mind that is commanded by God's word. It is controlled by God's word. It doesn't make a man perfect, but it does make a man full of understanding and wisdom not only of his own sin, but of the ramifications of sin, and often the ability to see sin in others and to talk about its destructive nature. This is a mind that's not controlled by substance, that's not controlled by relationship, it's not controlled by agenda or anything otherwise than God's word itself. He should be a man who is dignified, who is openly worthy of respect and is esteemed by others because of his life. That's what dignity is all about. It should be a man who is self-controlled, who acts with prudence according to God's word and demonstrates the ability to control himself in terms of godliness. It didn't mean that he's perfect, but he's learning that control and exercising it in a distinctively godly manner. And then he says this, he should be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. In other words, his life is marked by a distinctive relationship with God and in, in his love for God. His life is marked by a love for other people. And his life is marked by a steadfastness. In other words, a willingness to continue to love in the face of unlovability. That's what steadfastness is all about. He's just honorary about loving others. Why? Well, we'll get to that in a moment, but I'll give you a precursor. Because others are hard to love sometimes. But this person can love them. Why? Because they've learned the steadfastness of God's love for themselves. A lack of steadfastness so easily divides generations. The younger generation looks at the old and says, I'm not really lovable, so I don't believe that you can really love me. Today, the younger generation looks at the old and says, I've never had anybody love me in my life. Why would you start? Maybe that's you. That's not just true of the younger generation anymore. That's becoming the way that many of you that are, if I can use a, a, a term here, middle-aged. Whoa, man, that almost hit me, right? I saw some of you ducking and diving. It's the reality of the life that many of you grew up in. And it's framed your understanding of all things. You see, steadfastness shows love that gains influence. And so the older gentleman, the older woman who's learned that steadfastness is not offended or put off when that younger man or younger woman says, you couldn't love me. Why? Because they keep loving continue that's steadfastness every christian man should pursue godly character humbly submitting to follow the kind of men that we by faith aspire to become find a target focus in and follow older women he says this likewise be reverent in behavior not slanderers or slaves to much wine they're to teach what is good and so train the young women listen friends Every characteristic that he gives for godliness with the older men, it's not that it doesn't apply to the older women as well, but rather so that he's not just repetitive, he's 
assuming them down the line here. Godliness is godliness, be it man or a woman, but it applies specifically to both in specific ways. And that's what he's doing here, that that older women should have lives characterized by godliness, a, a holiness of their mind, a holiness in their heart and in their desires, and a holiness in their spirit and, and, and in their demeanor in the way that they approach life. And then he goes on to say that their talk doesn't attack the reputation of others, either directly or indirectly. And, and listen, I think there's a reason for this. I don't think it's because women are just more likely to gossip or to slander or anything like this. But here's what I do believe he's saying is that women, by the way God created them, and that's a long story I don't have time to recapture right now, but I'm hoping you'll just trust me in this, that the way God created them gave them an orientation of strength in relationships. They get things that men don't get. And because of that, the content of what they talk about is going to be driven more by relationships And there's going to be a greater opportunity for slander and gossip towards others to come into that. Because that consumes more of the content of what they talk about. And a woman who's driven by sin, who talks about relationships, will always gossip and slander to some degree of severity. And so we need to understand this. Why is he talking about women here? Because what he's doing is he is appealing to the very design of God for your life. And he's saying, let godliness purge all the way down in you to the very way that he created you. Because he wants a glory from you that he can't get from men. You see, men don't perfectly represent or image God. And women don't perfectly represent or image God. But both show a representation of God and demonstrate a nature of God that we both are incomplete of. And what Paul's doing is he's commending older women to drive godliness all the way to the core of the way that females were created by God. Listen, friends, this world that we live in that wants to break down every division of distinction between men and women It's just anti-biblical. If we don't engage and embrace the biblical teaching of sexuality, we'll just think, well, it was just kind of happenstance that we ended up with the biology that we did. No, what I'm saying is God didn't just make you different by biology. God made you different by intention. And he wants a different, distinct glory from men and from women that complements one another, not that competes. And one is not better than the other. One is not of more value than the other. But they both bring a glory to God that cannot be replaced by the other. And that's what Paul is getting at here. The older woman cannot be controlled by substance as well or anything that might exercise control over them. But she needs to be intentional to teach and to train younger women in what they have learned and experienced by following Jesus. Why is it that the older women should teach and train the younger women? Because in the matters that Paul gives them to talk about, men have nothing to say. And what they do have to say is not going to be very helpful. Can I get an amen from a woman in the room? Right? It takes a woman that is godly to grow a little girl into a godly woman to the core of her being. And men can and should teach and train and love with all that God gives us to because that's part of their life that is so valuable. But listen, when the conversation comes to a focus, Kristen, I'm going to need you to step into this. (laughs) I, I can't have this conversation. For those of you who don't know, that's my wife. That's what we need in the church. Godly character qualifies and identifies the woman whose life is worthy to be modeled and who should be sought out 
for counsel. Listen, Christian discipleship demands that we look at a person's life before we listen to their words. We live in a soundbite society, friends. We don't even happen to know the person. But Christian discipleship demands that we look at a person's life before we listen to their words. And listen, when a godly person speaks, it should impact our lives. Hear me. And often by a change in our thinking, our attitudes, and our actions. Friends, I propose to you that if we would be more committed to Jesus Christ and living by faith in Him, we would be more open and vulnerable to living in such a way as we were counseled by God's people and not just the way in which we felt. I'm not trying to remove your responsibility. I'm not trying to remove your own wisdom and calculations, but I am telling you that the more we trust God, the more we'll listen to His people. And we'll do what they say. Why? Because we know it's not about people. It's about Christ and the way He's working in us. And where what they tell us opposes our actions, opposes our affections or our attitudes, we'll say, God, I don't even agree with this person. But I believe you are using them in my life. And so, by faith, I'm going to try what they say and see if you'll affirm it and confirm it in my life. And a lot of lives radically transformed by that. You know why? Personally, I believe it's the will of God. And you go, but what if they're wrong? You know what? They are wrong sometimes. They are wrong. Sometimes they have wrong motives and wrong intentions that they don't even know themselves. But let me tell you something. It's not because of them, and you are not in their hands. The Father never lets go. The Father's always in control. And the Father's got you. You you don't have to worry. You say, well, what if I knew their counsel was wrong? Well, I can't get into every situation. I suppose you could. But what I'm saying to us is we are so independent and autonomous and minded in such a way that we don't want to listen to what other people have to say unless what they say affirms what we feel and what we think. And we bring things to people in such a way that we don't want to lay it on the table and go, would you do what you will with this and then give it back to me because I don't know what to do. And then you you get upset because they tell you the wrong thing. Well, the truth of the matter is, then you didn't really not know what to do. You just knew that what you wanted to do wasn't right or you weren't sure. And so you came to them with the same false premise that they answered you. And the truth of the matter is, if the gospel's not true, they can't trust you any more than you can trust them. And my point in exposing all this is just simply to say, we should expect some wrong answers. But we should also expect that even if we find the counsel to be incorrect or incorrect in some secondary manner, people will still be walking beside us and we'll both learn and grow in godliness together. But most times, the counsel will be right. Second, if we expect that discipleship will serve to make us godly, then we must focus on biblical life priorities. That's what Paul's getting to. I talked about the idols in our culture and how they're closest to us and they're most comfortable and convenient for us to to stray away from God on in chapter 1. And that's the same way that, that Paul is trying to confront us with the gospel in our idolatry in chapter 2. But he's doing it not on a, on, on a congregational level, but on a personal level. And while we always keep an eye on these for our life, discipleship focuses on our idols, on our temptations, and and on our struggles. It doesn't just talk about theory. It talks about people. And it talks about people in relationship to the person, Jesus Christ, and how He and what He has done for us and His living in us is changing us from who we are to who He is in us. And so those idols and those temptations and those struggles that are very specific to the areas of our life and the stages of our life or what we most need to hear people 
talk about. You see, addressing personal idols, addressing false identities, and addressing deceived roles form the bulk of discipleship conversations. We think discipleship conversations just address, yes, that action was wrong, stop it, you moron. That's not a rebuke biblically. That's as much of a sin as the other, though it might have been technically correct. But a rebuke says, yes, that is a sin, and this is what's getting you into that sin. Because typically, if you'll just listen to a person, they'll tell you what they're asking you to do. And what this discipling relationship does is it addresses the personal idols of our life and the false identities that we've imposed on ourselves that the gospel is trying to crack off of us and remove and and the deceived roles that that the world has thrown up on us that we go, I don't think I want to do that or I think I need to be about this, but I can't achieve that. And that's where we're taking the gospel and the truth of God's word, sound doctrine, and we're applying it to life and we're going, you keep walking in sin because you're not believing what God's word says. Every act of sin is rooted in unbelief from God's word. And that's what discipleship is about. But it's done in a relationship of trust, first in Christ, but then in one another, so that you will listen. That's why he moves immediately from the older women to the younger women. And here's what he says. They're to be taught and trained to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Well, if we haven't been controversial till now, we just step in controversy. And maybe sometimes the world has dumbed scriptural teaching down to a woman being barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. But that's not what Paul is teaching here. Hear me in this. That is as broken of a concept in the world's imposing that on young women as any in all of Scripture. But you do need to hear what Paul is saying here. And what should be drawn from this. Let me just start with the first. To love their husbands and children. Honestly, what could be so hard about this? Come on. Women, you can laugh. I'm setting the men up. We know, don't we? We know. Yes. It is very hard. How, how, how hard could it be to really love a young husband? who doesn't know how to love his wife well or serve her well. He's probably not overly attentive to serving his wife. It can be very hard. And you know what the prevailing counsel is in the world today? Well, if he doesn't take you, get rid of him. Find another one. That's damnation on the soul right there, folks. That's not the counsel that we need to be giving according to sound doctrine. We understand why this should be taught and trained. It's as real as it gets. And it's not just real because of the argument that's carrying and taking place. It's real because that young person, man and girl, or girl and boy alike, man and woman, you know, what, however you'd qualify them. Boy and girl seems to be acting so, so soft in these moments. They're going, am I going to spend the rest of my life that way? Should I just make a change now so I can... Enjoy the rest of my life. I mean, that's, that's the kind of deception they're entertaining. And you see, what God wants them to see, and very often needs an older woman or man to massage this in, is to say this. No, no, this is not the way it's going to be the rest of your life. Not because God's going to change the situation, but because God's going to change you. Just think about that. That's what this young mom, this young lady, this young wife is hearing from an older lady who's been there, done that, thrown the t-shirts away. Self-control displays an ability to keep oneself under control. That's what this young mom is learning. And let me tell you something. When you've got a newborn that has become a toddler, that has gone from perfection 
to the other end of the spectrum, you're not losing your mind when you think you are. Let me just be nice about it and put it in terms that we can all relate to. That's what theological terms are. Are they going to be two forever? No, actually two is not going to last any longer than one or five. But it will feel like one to thirty every day. Right? You got to get rid of this one. Your husband's child. Right? What is Paul talking about here, friends? You know, if, if you're a young mom, you know the reality of that. If you're a mom, you may have gotten over, but you can, you know, you you still have issues, right? Boy, you need somebody to come alongside you. You might see them once a week for 15, 30 minutes. Put their arm around you. How does it feel? And when you've got some minute, seemingly most unimportant success, they only peed on the floor four times today. (laughs) Right? They can go, see, you make me Is that really a gospel issue? It is when it's crushing the heart of that mom. It is when it's crushing the heart of that young man. It's a gospel issue when it addresses the heart. It's a gospel issue when a young mom is going, why do I give all this time and attention to my kids? Because the time and attention you give cannot be given by anyone else. God gave them to you. He will equip you for that. Listen, friends, godly character, it always produces a demonstration of godliness in the roles and in the relationships of life. And these these last four characteristics that Paul gives, I I wish I had more time to unpack them. I don't. But, But apply that conversation that I just extrapolated about a young mom to a, a young lady that's not married, to a young lady that's newly married, to a, 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 a mom that is at any stage of life, that, that a young man not married or newly married or at any stage of life wondering if the current struggle he's in or she's in is going to define the rest of their life and will there be any reprieve or any joy found in it. And then to have one older who can come alongside and walk with them doesn't have to hang out with them all the time, but is that presence in their life and speaks to them in matters of personal joy. It's important for you to guard your heart, man. Speaks to them in matters of prioritizing their family role. Stop saying yes to everything at work and to all the recreation so you can start saying yes to that family. And if there are some things you can't cut out, figure out what you can so you can do what you need to do at home. He's not saying all the other stuff is wrong or you have to contrast that versus this. But what he is saying is that in the relationships of discipleship, we prioritize biblical priorities and not just the priorities that the world imposes on us in our identities, in our roles, and in our understandings of those. They're so counter to the world's values and the world's practices that having a mature Christian to rebuke and encourage you, I believe is required. And I didn't know that for a long time in my life but I've always had that in my life. I think one of the reasons I didn't know it is because I just assumed it. I have, I have three generations of men before me that discipled me in godliness. Three. And the same number of generations. I was 10 when my great-grandfather died, 15 when my great-grandmother died. I was the chosen one, friends. And I reminded my family of that I mean, I was blessed. But if you didn't experience that in your biological family, you're not absent of that in the church family. That's why I say to you, 
the church is not like a family. We are a family. And that's the blessing that we have to embrace with one another. The responsibility that we have to take. When he gets to younger men, I need to move on here. He says this, be self-controlled. Because I, I think Paul knew two things. Number one, and I say this a little lightheartedly, he knew if too many things were given, none of them would happen, right? And so let's focus on one thing. Control yourself. Control yourself. Okay? But that's not the only list. The list had already been given. In chapter 1, and, and the man who he's looking to, to disciple him, that's pouring into him, he's looking at all those godly characteristics. And he's just saying, you know, if you're just focused on controlling yourself and becoming like the one God put in front of you, it'll lead you along a path to becoming like me. Godliness means assimilating and translating this sound doctrine into faithful living. Friends, young men need godly men to sharpen them that understand the nature of a man's hard heart. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron. One man sharpens another. Let me tell you what that principle says. There's going to be a lot of friction created that in that relationship if any Christian sharpness remains. And young women need the same. An older woman with seasoned godliness to fight condemnation and to encourage a focus on right priority. That will apply a rebuke and an encouragement and a correction or a teaching in righteousness, pointing them to Jesus in all matters. Discipleship is not about religious education, friends. It's about training in righteousness and godliness in all of life. And when godly priorities are established, everything else finds its right place. Let me get to the fourth characteristic and cover it this morning. Discipleship aims... To equip every Christian to adorn the gospel by their life. That's where he goes. At the end of verse 10, he says, Teaching them to adorn the sound doctrines of the faith with their life. You see, there's a difference between having your life adorned with the gospel and adorning the gospel with your life. And what Paul is doing here is saying that because one happens that we can have our lives adorned by, adorned by the gospel cover, covered clothed by the gospel does not necessarily mean that it will automatically translate into adorning the gospel with our lives. But through this discipleship, that will come about. He says it this way in Ephesians, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or mature personhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, what Paul says is the church grows and grows up when we speak the truth in love to one another. And discipleship focuses the church to relate to one another so that all people grow and so that all people grow up in Christ Jesus. Discipleship in the church, friends, it means the prevailing conversation of the church aims to produce personal obedience through gospel-sanctifying behavior. That's what's taking place. Now, let me just say this. Godly living is the aim of all discipleship in the church. Every relationship, every group, and every activity. So I, I want to conclude in this way today. Is church life, however nebulous that would sound, so important? Producing a growing godliness in your life. Is your life adorning the gospel? Because people look at you and the way you live see the goodness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what discipleship is all about. And what I want you to walk away with today is to simply know 
that as the gospel adorns your life, your life will adorn others. And that's what the church performs for Christ. Let's pray. The worship team will come up. Lord Jesus, would you help us today? I know in moments like these, we're so quick to see our lives and to know our desire to grow in you, but to see all of our imperfections and to think there's been no, there's been no progress made. So God, I pray right now that you would just uh, protect each person here from uh, any condemnation that is measured against themselves by their own evaluation or assessment. God, I pray that just the simple purity of the question, is my life adorning the gospel, would permeate to every place in us and cause us to look at our lives in such a way that asks, where is the gospel not adorning my life? God, may the grace and the goodness that is you and you alone, may it permeate to every place in us. And may we be so humble and vulnerable because we're grounded in our faith in you that any person sitting in the room here today could be used by you to speak a word and bring about greater gospel transformation. God, this is hard because it's an everyday ordeal. So I don't just preach it for us for today or for this week. But I preach it for us to be defined by this as a church. That we fall so in love with you that we can trust one another. And that we have such a desire for authenticity that we will take the first step to be vulnerable in our relationship. Help us in this, not because we know each other better, but because we're trusting you more. Spirit of God, do your work in this time as we respond to Jesus.